well-written, articulated, thoughtful memo often goes much further than an impassioned speech. Hi, I'm Aaron Levy, and I have this crazy vision of a workplace where your manager doesn't suck. Where instead of being the reason you quit your job, is actually a reason you stay. Where your manager is your coach to help you reach your full potential at work. I founded Raise the Bar, wrote Open Honest and Direct, and started this podcast to help companies transform their workplace by creating an environment where both the company and employee succeeds. In this podcast, I get to interview leaders who built high-performing teams and learn from them on what it takes to unlock a team's potential. Today, I'm lucky to have a good friend, a new dad, and the co-founder and CEO of Lattice, Jack Altman. Jack founded Lattice, a performance management and employee engagement platform four years ago, and since then has seen it grow from startup to growth stage business with over 150 employees and 15,000 plus customers. In today's conversation, Jack talks about how he's had to evolve as a leader as his company has grown, the importance of having a team you trust and feel safe around, and he gives his perspective on the shifting power dynamic in the workplace. I think you're going to enjoy it. Cheers. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thanks for coming on. And it's, um, it's been a long time coming. We've been talking about this for a bit. So thank you for being on here. Yeah, I'm thrilled to do it. And it's, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. One of the things I've been curious about is it seems like entrepreneurship runs in your family with your brother also being a, a successful entrepreneur. What about how you grew up kind of sparked this desire for entrepreneurship? Interestingly, I didn't have much of an inclination myself growing up that I would want to start my own company or run my own business. I think Sam got into it at an earlier age than I did, and maybe he's part of what paved the way. He dropped out of college halfway through to start his company, Looped, which I suppose was in about 2005. Um, But I didn't get into tech until around 2013. And I didn't start Lattice until 2015. So it was, it was a longer journey for me. I suppose if there was anything that might have connected it, I think we grew up in a house where there was a, a deep sense of acceptance and a sort of uh, deep belief in the kids that we, could, that we could do anything. So you started to kind of grow how you thought about leadership in your life at Teespring. And then you, you started Lattice and you've grown that from, you know, from the ground up, what has had to change about your role as the business has grown and evolved? Man. Yeah. Everything has changed dramatically. And I think, you know, it's, it's all a spectrum, but I do think about the journey and these breakpoints. you know, I think there's a way that you run the team when there's four of you. And then once you get past eight or 10, there's a new mode. And then, Again, you'll find a breakpoint at maybe 25, and then you find another breakpoint at 80. And different people will describe this differently. One theory that I think is directionally accurate is that each time a new management layer is introduced, a new set of norms is needed, and a new style of leadership and a new set of practices is needed for the CEO. And so when you're one person, you're doing no management, and then you know between one and maybe eight or 10 people, you're just a manager and you're, you know, everybody's doing different things, but you kind of know what everybody's doing. You can keep it all in your head and team's small. Then you evolve into being a manager of managers. And um, then for a while, you've got one management layer. And then there becomes a break point again, you know, 50 to 100 people where you start to bring in executives and you need 
leaders for those managers. And then of course, you know, that sort of um, recursively continues on from there. <laughs> and I think at each of these points, the CEO's job really changes. The direction of the change is that you go from building the product to building the company. And I think making that change too early or too late is a really common place for people to get tripped up. You'll see this less frequently, but you do see cases where very early on, founders will want to skip ahead and get past those early product market fit discovery phases and try to outsource things that are so critical to creating a business um, that it just doesn't work. So an example of that might be a five-person team that you know, raised the seed round and doesn't have product market fit, but the CEO doesn't want to get on sales calls, doesn't want to be the one who's figuring out how the product should work. They want to hire a salesperson and a product manager, and they want to work on mission and vision and values. And it's just too early for that. And so step one is if you don't get the product market fit right, nothing's going to work. And if you do get it right, everything will kind of work. So there's this very binary phase at the beginning where you get a product into the market that the market so badly needs that it's going to rip it out of you, no matter how badly you manage the company. You know, when, when we say it like that, it sounds very binary. It's of course not exactly binary. It's of course gradual and it's earned over, you know, months or quarters, or in some cases even years, where you go from, we don't have anything at all that people care about to we have something that people very badly need. But that's a journey, and there's, there's no substituting that. But then you get to a point where you do have a product in market, you do have happy customers, you do have a clear roadmap, and then the CEO's job starts to morph, and your job becomes building the company. And building the company is about building the hiring practices and building out the team that will both do the work and hire the people who will do the work. So that, that's one part. Part of it is the communication infrastructure, the mission, the vision, the values that you're going to live by, that all, all of that infrastructure work for what creates a company and a culture and a machine that can run on its own. That's all part of building the company. And then it becomes about strategy and communications. So how do you determine what the direction for the company will be and what matters most? And how do you make sure that everybody at the company knows what that is and what their role in that's going to be. One of the things I always harp on is like clarity and context. Those are the two things any great leader has to do and is responsible for. And it sounds like inherently you're, you're doing that and you're focusing on that now as your roles had to change with this new management layer. Yeah. And I think that's one that the larger your company gets, the more work you have to do to, to keep up with the demand of communication. You know, when you're 30 people, you can, you can still stand in one room and tell everybody everything. You're also gonna know all 30 people. Um, the strategy is gonna not have that much complexity to it. You probably don't have tons of products. When you become larger, one problem is you don't know everybody and they don't all know you. So a lot of that sort of deep trust that makes communication shorthand easier is lost. You also probably have a much more complex and nuanced strategy. And so you're going to have more products, you're going to be in different markets, you're going to be making trade-offs, you're going to have multiple initiatives going. And so it's a more complex and nuanced message. And then the last thing that really changes is the incentives of the people at your company diverge more. And so a communicative exec team is super duper important. And so 
you eventually can't just rely on yourself to do all the communication. So one of the most important jobs, I believe, for a CEO or any company leader is that they build out their own team. And so, well, I, as you know, CEO of a 150-person company, can't possibly communicate to all 150 people all the time and have sort of a high-trust, safe space. I can have that with a group of you know, eight or 10 people on an executive team. And those people can have that with eight or 10 people on their teams. And so it becomes really important that you build those recursive structures where each team has a high degree of trust and you can talk in a high fidelity, safe way with groups of people and that that can ricochet throughout the company. So strong executives and strong managers is the most fundamental important thing. Um, a second thing is you have to repeat yourself a ton. And this was something that I had heard a lot in the early days from more experienced leaders who would say, you know, you won't believe how much you have to repeat yourself. You're going to be saying the same thing over and over. And that's totally true. You have to say the same thing over and over. It, it's always a surprise for new leaders when they'll say something on June 1st. And then on June 13th, somebody will say, well, what are we doing about this thing? And they're like, I just told you that 13 days ago. And they're like, oh, I didn't hear that. And it's true, you have to repeat yourself a ton, but the way that you do that isn't to just stand up at the same venue to the same group at every all hands and literally repeat yourself. What repeating yourself a ton looks like in practice when it's done well. So maybe this week, you know, at an all hands, we're talking about why in our product strategy, we're building this new set of tools for larger customers. And then again, at an end product design, you know, weekly leadership sync, we're going to talk about it again. And then I'm going to send a company email two weeks later, reinforcing a point about our go-to-market strategy, but I'm going to touch on that again. And so you just find all of these different ways because people won't digest it better if you're just every all hands repeating the same thing or to some degree they can, but it's sort of a uh, bland and ineffective leadership style. But really what you're looking for is just lots of different touch points to repeat yourself a ton. It's saying similar but nuanced points, but nuancedly different points uh, to, to sort of drive home something core. And it's finding different venues and it's finding sort of different avenues. So it might be an email, it might be a Slack message, maybe it's a Zoom call, maybe it's in person, maybe it's an ad hoc one-on-one, but you and the leadership team reinforce these things all the time. It's kind of like the same reason Coca-Cola still advertises, right? Because they need to continue getting the message out there. And, you know, it's almost like making external marketing, internal marketing. Yeah, I love that. The, the idea of external internal marketing is, is a great concept. The, the third point I would make, and maybe the last piece, is that the, the larger a company grows, the more important writing becomes. You can say everything that you want, you can talk about it, but sometimes you just need to document and you need to write. A well-written, articulated, thoughtful memo often goes much further than an impassioned speech. It means that everybody can read something at the same time or on their own time. It means that everybody is going off of the same content. It means that what's been said or what's been, you know, in this case, written is, doesn't have to be set in stone, but it's memorialized and you can come back to it. And if people forget, they can point to it. There's so many reasons why writing is important and the larger your company becomes, the more important writing is to having good communication. And a lot of the companies that I consider to be best run, I think are 
famous for being writing cultures. You know, one example of this is Stripe, where they stay incredibly aligned as a company, given how many products they have and how wide their offering is and how big their business is. And in order to get things done at Stripe, you pretty much have to be a great writer. You'll see Stripe hiring managers when they're posting for jobs, very directly calling out that you need to be a great writer to succeed at Stripe. Um, and if you talk to people who work there, they'll all talk about the importance of memos and they'll draft emails, you know, in, in groups together where they'll, you know, comment and critique each other's writing and they, they treat it like an art form. I just think to scale a company, writing is such an important tool. Just like thinking about the space that you're in, what kind of pressure is that put on you as a, as a founder and a, and a leader in, in the spotlight of a company that delivers employee engagement and employee experience solutions to other companies? I think it puts us in an interesting situation where um, just like if you were a marketing tech company, you'd expect to have good marketing. Or if you are a data company, you'd expect to have, you know, if your product was a data product, you'd expect that you're pretty good about collecting and using and analyzing data yourself. I think because we create and sell products that help you build better cultures and stronger managers and better employee purpose and alignment, there's a higher bar for us to do it ourselves. Now, obviously, I believe that every company in the world is better off, you know, almost infinitely, the better you are at these things. I think there's sort of, you, you couldn't be too good at these things. But I think for us, the the demands and the expectations are, are much higher. And, you know, I think to some degree, the demands on the world have gotten larger and, you know, companies are expected to do more of this anyway. And I think that's a big part of why Lattice, you know, has whatever success we've found has been partially thanks to the fact that this trend is happening in the world. And I think this yeah. trend in the world is basically that employees and companies have a certain power balance and they both need each other and in the last decade that balance of power has really shifted towards the employee the result is that companies have to do a lot more to make the employee experience enjoyable worthwhile meaningful valuable if they want to attract and retain talent the performance review went from a once a year hierarchical goal-based evaluation and it turned into a lightweight, frequent, continuous mode of giving feedback for the benefit of the employee. So that's technically what happened, but really what happened is the customer of the performance review went from being the company to the employee. And instead mm. of it being a tool for companies to see who should we fire and who should we give you know, an annual raise to, it became a tool for employees, or that's at least the intention, is it became a tool for employees to grow their careers, to see why their work matters, to get to the next you know, phase of their job ladder or whatever. And so, you know, we're just part of that trend, but certainly the, the expectations on us are higher. What you guys are doing is also kind of, it seems like shifting the role of HR and how human resources thought of and looked. And what I'd love to, what I'm wondering from you is like, how, what do you believe the role of HR is and should be as this, in this new world where the, you know, where the weight is kind of tilting towards the, the employee? I think the big shift is that um, HR has gone from basically being a cost and compliance center to being a sort of revenue and strategic center. If you take the lens that HR is here to keep 
costs low and to keep the lawsuits away, you know, then you sort of have a 1990s, early 2000s and, you know, before model of what that looks like. So, you know, you want to make sure that you're being compliant. You want to make sure people are getting paid and that they have their benefits. You probably don't have this person reporting to, you know, the CEO, they might report into finance. You know, certainly they're going to do recruiting for you and that's going to be, that, that's always been the case, but you're not going to be investing heavily or, you know, taking, you know, great weight in their perspectives on the business. If you flip that around and you say, okay, this is a strategy, you know, there's a people strategy, just like there's a sales strategy and a marketing strategy and a product strategy, then that voice is all of a sudden just as important. You know, if you look at it from the lens of, you know, our product team leads the product strategy and sales and marketing lead out our go-to-market efforts and the people team, you know, is in charge of thinking about how are we strategically finding, enabling, deploying our people then that person's going to be at the same table. They're going to be, you know, an empowered executive who's got the CEO's ear and is just as important as, as the rest of the leadership team. And so the role, I think, is evolving into a much more strategic one. And companies are realizing that, you know, the CEO's role and the head of people's role is actually pretty similar. I kind of love that HR evolved its name to people operations or is in the process of making that evolution. I think that Human resources has this vibe that is, you know, humans are resources and that our people are, you know, assets that the company can use at their disposal. Versus when you talk about people operations, you know, implicit in that is sort of recognizing, you know, people's individuality and their humanness and saying, you know, these are, these are complex beings that work here. And the way that we're gonna succeed as a company is if we invest in those people. And so I think it sort of just, the name itself just helps reframe that whole mindset so much in a way that I love. As much as I love to believe that kind of the way of the world and, you know, everyone's starting to believe, the truth is so many businesses can succeed by having an HR compliance and by, by not treating their people well and, by, you know, by doing kind of these old world things. Do you see that dynamic changing? Do you see it being kind of a hey, in the future world of work, we're going to need to, people are going to need to adapt and change? Or do you think it's just going to be, you know, there's going to be a subset of businesses that operate using Lattice and operate in this, in this mindset of, you know, the employee experience? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's something that we certainly wrestled with a lot in the early days as we were considering, you know, is this market really big enough for us? Are there enough people who care? And in 2015 and 16, when we got started, the answer was kind of that there weren't enough. It, you know, it was fine for us because we were such a small company that we didn't need that many customers to see things the same way as us in order to grow our business. But I've been pretty surprised over the last several years how consistent the trend is. And I don't think this is the type of thing where every company in the world is going to make the shift that we're talking about here. And again, this is a spectrum, but for the sake of conversation, you know, the the old world of HR and the new world of HR, not every single company will, will move. And it's, it's not even necessarily right for every single business to think about people that way and to make those investments. But what I do think is true is two things. One, I think more and more businesses are becoming the types of businesses that should do things this way. And the types of businesses that should do this are the ones where people are the core asset of the company. And so if you are a technology company or if you are um, you know, an information worker of 
nearly any type of which there just will clearly become more and more of. At least I've never heard a good argument that it doesn't make sense to invest a lot more in your people than you probably are right now. And so I think the world is shifting in a way that more and more businesses will reorient towards this mindset of investing in your people. And that's how you'll drive the business growth um, rather than maybe the other way around. The second change is that I think employ like that will, that will continue to drive this is that employees are getting used to it and people start to build expectations. And so there is also a sense in which there is a cultural norm where employees who have worked at companies that really don't just say they put people first because everybody says they do that, but people have worked at a company that does and also work at a company that doesn't, those people will then forever select for companies uh, that operate the sort of way we're talking about. And so I think over time, the balance will shift towards people-centric companies because of that too. Jack, this was, um, I've just been excited to have this conversation with you for a while because every time we sit in over coffee or, or at, a, at a friend's wedding, we're, uh, we're having this conversation. I feel like it should be recorded. So I'm glad we got a chance to record it and I'm, uh, I'm excited for the audience to hear. Thrilled to do it, yeah. Thanks again for having me. Want to hear more great stories like this one? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. And you can always drop us a note at openhonestanddirect.com. Cheers and have a great day.